Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Asphenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and, the, and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, we are beginning a new series in the book of Daniel today. We're going to be here until the summer. I'm super excited about it. Uh, if you're a Christian or if you've been around this church thing for a while, um, then you'll be familiar with the, the first part of this book. Uh, and maybe the second part as well. Uh, the first part of this book contains six stories. And if you grew up at a church and you're maybe around my age, then you'll be really familiar with these, and you would have seen these, uh, these stories, a number of them uh, really dramatized, if you will, on a flannel board. Anybody remember flannel boards, flannel graphs? Yes. I learned a lot of my Bible stories on flannel graphs. Uh, if, if you're too young to know what I'm talking about or you weren't around church, then you missed some, are the, really some cutting edge technology at the time for us. And that was in order to, to kind of, to, to, for the kids to picture what was going on in a Bible story, there would be a, a board in this little uh, Sunday school room. And, and uh, somewhere before we get the, the Sunday school snacks, which were the cheap little cookies that were rings that you could put on your finger, you remember those? And uh, the cheapest cookies that you could find at the grocery store, that's what they were, and usually watered down Kool-Aid. Maybe this was just my church, but watered down Kool-Aid and little cheap little cookies that you could wear as rings, which is what we would do. You put them on your finger, then you kind of eat them around them. But before you get to snack time, you would have this awesome story time, and it would be a, a, a board that was covered with this flannel flat fabric, and then there would be these little uh, paper cutouts that had these flannel on the back. 
And, and so the, these would be the stories that we would really look forward to, the stories in the book of Daniel. And what, you would have like Daniel and you would have like the king and he would like, Daniel would walk up and you would like picture him walking up to the king and the king would tell him something and he says, no, I'm not gonna do that. And then like there would be this little, this is like cutting edge technology, there'd be like a, a little, uh, maybe a little stone that would open up on this little little ring. You'd open up and then Daniel would go down into the lion's den and then there would be lions down there. And then this is the, our cutting edge technology that we had then. And so, so Daniel, the, like the stories there, you have, you have a, a lion's den, so a man with lions. You would have the, the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace. So there's fire and they're not burning. And that was really exciting. And then there was like the creepy story of this like disembodied hand that's riding on the wall. It always like creeped me out as a kid. I'm like, I don't know what that is about, but I don't want any disembodied hand riding on my wall. But it was like, these are like cool, exciting stories to read. Uh, there's six stories in the first half of Daniel. And then if you're familiar with the second half of Daniel at all, it, it kind of gets a little bit more weird, if you will, in the second half of the book. There's like, there's four visions in the second half of the book. And uh, it's, it's kind of, it, it, depending on how you're put on the hook, it's kind of some crazy things going on back there. But here's what we're going to see in the book of Daniel. Here's, here's the big takeaway that we're going to have is that Daniel's gonna show us how faith thrives in a hostile culture. How does faith thrive in a hostile culture? And even we're gonna see in the second half of the book, it's gonna tell us why faith can thrive in a hostile culture. Because the, the big message in the second half of the book is this, God triumphs even over a hostile culture. We can, we can we're gonna, the lesson we're gonna get is faith can thrive in a hostile culture. And here's why it can thrive, because we know that God triumphs even in or over a hostile culture. How does faith, how does faith thrive in a hostile culture? How does faith thrive in dark times? That's what we're gonna look at in Daniel. How does faith thrive when the supporting structures of faith crumble? And here's what I mean by that. What we're going to see in Daniel is that the, the Hebrews are now conquered by a foreign evil culture who do, not, who do not support, do not worship the one and only true God. They hold the Hebrews in contempt because of the way they worship. And not only that, they have come in by, at this point we're going to see, and they have ransacked Jerusalem. And they have destroyed all the things that, were, that God had put in place to support the Hebrews' worship of the one and only true God. And so now it seems, it's gonna, it would feel like because they have been captured, they've been uh, conquered, they have been humiliated, the, all the supporting structures, the priests and the, the worship, the, the sacrifice daily and the yearly sacrifice, the, the actual temple itself, all have been destroyed and wiped out. And you would think now the faith is going to die. And the people are going to die because all the structures that have supported faith have been, are crumbling and have been conquered, have been destroyed. But the book of Daniel tells us that not only can faith thrive when things are dark and hard, but that's exactly when faith thrives, when times are hard and when they are dark. Think about the hall of faith 
in Hebrews chapter 11. If you're familiar with the Bible, or if you're not, Hebrews chapter 11 is this whole, this whole chapter where the writer of Hebrews lays out all of these stories about these great men and women of the faith who, who, who he says that through faith conquered. who through faith did amazing things. He, he starts with the very beginning with creation and he rolls all the way through and he gets to verse 32 through verse 38. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Hebrews 11, 32 through 38. Again, I love to hear those pages. I mean, if you have an app, that's cool, but I love to hear those pages turning. The writer of Hebrews says this. And what more shall I say? He's been writing now for 31 verses in this chapter about these great men and women of faith. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. Listen to this. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises. Listen to this. Stopped the mouths of lions, that's Daniel. Quench the power of fire. That's the three Hebrew children. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Escaped the edge of the sword. Were made strong out of weakness. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. So that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, listen to this phrase, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Daniel and his friends who are at the center of this book, they get named right here in the middle of this hall of faith of these amazing people. It's talking about Abraham and Moses and, and Daniel and his three friends get named in this hall of faith. Can you think of that? Isn't that amazing? They get, they get named here in the hall of faith, but I don't think they were thinking about their legacy at the times of these stories that we're going to be going through. They felt like they had been born into a terrible day, into a terrible time. The situation they found themselves in did not seem like a recipe for God to use them mightily, but that's exactly what it was. But we get the benefit of looking back through our flannel graphs and seeing the way that happens, but they didn't know that. They didn't know they were gonna be trumpeted in flannel graphs in my little Sunday school class thousands of years later. All they knew is their country had been conquered. The temple was destroyed. There was no longer any priests sacrificing in the, at, the, at the altar and they were alone in a foreign land. Under the thumb of the mightiest king on the face of the earth. But this is the story of how someone becomes a person of great faith. Great faith isn't born when the way is easy and the road is clear. Great faith isn't needed then when things are easy. 
Great faith isn't needed when times are, are, are times of plenty, when there are times of peace. It's when there are evil kings or a hostile culture, that's when great faith is needed. Great faith is needed when there are, is fire and there are lions. That's when great faith is needed. Faith is necessary when in easy times, but faith shines in exile. Faith is needed in easy times, but faith shines in exile. So what is this exile situation that Daniel and his friends find themselves in? What is going on at this time? Let's just kind of get a picture of what's going on and how Daniel and his three friends find themselves in this situation. God made a covenant with his people Israel through Abraham. God made a covenant with them and it was laid out and it was continually reiterated to his people from Abraham and then through Moses through more clarity through the law and through the history of his people and through the prophets. God continually laid out for them his story, his covenant with them. His covenant with them which contained blessings and cursings. In other words, God's agreement with the Jews, when God called out Abraham and then when he rescued his people out of Egypt and he made his, his more detailed covenant through Moses with his people, it wasn't just a contract. He made a covenant with them because a contract says that it, when one person breaks it, the contract is broken. There may be repercussions for it, but the, the contract is no longer in to be observed. But a, a covenant continues to bind even when one person breaks it. It continues with blessings and with consequences no matter what. And here was the blessing and the consequences that God gave the people. He said, if you will, I will be your God and you will be my people. And if you will obey me and you will follow this covenant, follow the law, then it will go well with you. And you will live in the, plant, in the land that, that I'm going to take you into that's flowing with milk and honey. And you will have peace and you will rule and you will not be ruled. And you will lend and you will not borrow. And things will go well with you. The land will flourish. Your people will flourish. I will multiply you like the sands on the seashore. But if you do not keep my law, if you do not follow my covenant, if you do not stay true to me, this is like a marriage. That's, what, that's why marriage is a covenant. It's a picture of the, of the relationship that God has with his people. If you, do not, if you do not keep my covenant, if you are unfaithful to me, if you go and run after other false gods, if you go and date and flirt with other false gods and you continue to go after them and you play that role, then this is what's going to happen for you. There will be cursings that, are, that will come upon you. And this is what he said to them in Deuteronomy 28. He said, because you did, did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of all the abundance of the things, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted. You hear that? The walls in which you trusted, not me, you trusted in the walls, they come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. If you are not careful to do all the words of this law which are written in this book that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Now, Judah, which is the southern kingdom 
The, the nation of Israel had been split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was 10 tribes, and Judah, which was the southern 12 tribes. Israel had long ago fallen into exile. They'd pretty much been unfaithful from the get-go when the two nations separated. Judah had kind of a more up-and-down zigzag history. But now they had been unfaithful for a long time and God is gonna finally step in and that's where we come into the beginning of the book of Daniel. God's gonna finally step in and fulfill his covenant. The consequences that come when you are unfaithful. In 2 Kings 24, we see the story about what has happened here before Daniel goes into captivity. 2 Kings 24, one through four. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim, who was the king of Judah at the time, the, the southern nation, Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. You hear what? What's happening, this is God playing out what he had promised to them if they were unfaithful. According to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets, surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, that's the king before Jehoiakim, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood and the Lord would not pardon so this is pretty much a pretty terrible time to which Daniel is born. Judah has been unfaithful for years and generations, and now finally God is delivering them over as he had promised years before that if you are unfaithful, I will deliver you over. And now that is exactly what is happening. They're being scattered or exiled from the promised land that God had given them. And that's why it says in the beginning of the passage that Ms. Carolyn read for us, Daniel 1, 1 through 2, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God and brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Can you imagine how embarrassing it would have been? God's chosen people have been conquered by this foreign power, and not only have they been conquered, but they have come in and taken the choice men out of the, the nobility and have taken them back to Babylon. And not only that, they said, just to kick dirt in your eyes, we've also come in and taken the things that you use to worship your God in the temple, we've now taken those pieces and we've taken them back to Babylon and we've put them in the temple of our God just to show you our God is more mighty than yours. Can you imagine how humiliated that must, that must, they must have been? How angry they must have been? And how filled with doubt they must have been? Is our God as mighty as he says he is? Did he really do all these things that our forefathers said that he did? Because if he was that mighty, would Babylon have come in and conquered us so easily? Would they have been able to parade us, our choice men, to their land in front of our eyes when we are helpless to do anything? 
Well, they have taken the objects that God gave and had been consecrated to his use and his worship back and placed them in the house of their false God, if he's really God at all? Those are the thoughts that we have when hard times come. When the support structure of our faith around us begins to crumble, we're faced to ask the question, is our God really who our forefathers say that he was? Is our God actually as mighty as the Bible says that he is? Did he really do all those things that we have heard about, that we saw on the flannel graph and that we have heard the stories of our great-great-grandfather, the things, the ways that they have experienced God? Because if God was that mighty, then would we, the church, the American church, be experiencing what we are now? Would we be humiliated? Would we be doubted? Would it look like he's so far away? Verses three and four, then the king commanded commanded Ashpenaz. I love these biblical names. His chief eunuch to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. These are the youths that he picked. Youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. He picked the cream of their crop to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. It would have been really difficult to be born in this time, but what we're gonna see is that God was doing something in the darkness. God was doing something in the exile. Exile is when God's unfaithful people are placed in an unfaithful land in order to learn faithfulness. You hear that? Exile is when God's unfaithful people are placed in an unfaithful land in order to learn, in order to learn faithfulness to God. It's when God's people become too comfortable and too secure in the walls that they have built and in the, the ease of their life. They can become too comfortable in their own prosperity. They become too tied in to slumber and sleep. And God has to come in as they run and play the harlot with other false gods. God has to wake them up in the way that he finally does that after he calls and calls and calls and calls is to take them out of their land and put them into the land of an unfaithful people in order to suddenly wake them up so that they can learn what it truly means to be faithful to God. That's what exile is. What is God doing in exile? What is God doing with Daniel and and these three Hebrew children and the rest of his people in this moment in exile? Well, the first thing that we see is that God is bringing correction. God's people have been unfaithful to him. They've been distracted by pleasure and prosperity. They've been wooed by the, the worship of the peoples that are surrounding them. They want to be like everybody else. They want to be like the nations around them. Like, why do we have these constraints upon us? Why does God say we have to worship this way? Why does God say we can't eat this, that we have to do this? We'd rather be like them. Look at them. They seem to be doing all right over there. They're, they're prosperous. They seem to be fairly happy. Oh, we're over here and we're having to do all these things. And God's people feel the the woo and the the call to go and worship and serve other other false idols. 
And the first thing that exile does is it brings correction. It stops us in our tracks. It stops God's people in their tracks and says, I alone am your God. Do not chase these other false idols. And so I'm going to put you in a place in a time where you cannot face, you cannot chase those anymore because you only have me. Daniel and these three Hebrew children in the middle of this evil culture, in the middle of this evil empire, they had nobody else to turn to, nothing else to turn to. They either had to go along with the flow in Babylon or they had to turn and worship the one and only true God alone. That was the only choice they had. They could no longer be lukewarm, hot and cold. Yeah, we worship you when we like you, but we actually want to kind of mix in these other things in with the things that you have said and and try to make our own kind of buffet. Have you ever looked at your plate when you go to a buffet? I know buffets sound kind of gross right now during COVID world, but you remember back when we went to, actually, let's be honest, they're pretty gross before COVID, but have you ever looked at your plate whenever you went to a buffet? And notice the weird collection of things. There never would be things that you would put together if you were making a meal. Like fried chicken and a taco. Like, and rice. And ice cream. Like that's, that's somehow that makes sense when you go to a buffet. And, and that's what we do whenever we are, are allowed to. We want to make this buffet of how we worship and observe the Lord. We don't serve the meal that he's called us to serve. We just kind of mix all things together. God brings exile, hard times, times when it looks like the devil is winning in order to bring correction. In that moment, God is training his people in faith. In scripture, there's this this tie-in between faith and faithfulness. The wording is the same. It's hard for translators to know sometimes what, how to translate the word, whether to translate faith or faithfulness. And that's because faith in itself means that we are going to be faithful, no matter where, whether things are easy or whether they are hard. Faith and faithfulness are tied in together. And when our lives look faithless or we're not being faithful to the Lord, it shows a lack of faith. It shows weak faith. What does God do in an exile? He's bringing correction. He's training his people in faith. And he is going to show his superior glory. Think about every example in scripture when God's people have been subjugated to evil rulers. Every, almost every story we have in scripture where God's people are subjugated to foreign or evil rulers, God uses it to show his greater glory. But when the middle of the story, it doesn't feel that way. Joseph spent a lot of years serving Potiphar. Joseph spent a lot of years in prison. Joseph got overlooked lots of times. But he was faithful to the Lord and had faith in the hard times and God used him to show his greater glory. The the Hebrews were under slavery for hundreds of years in Egypt. Hundreds of years. 
There's a generation after generation after generation of subjugation and difficult lives. It did not feel at the moment like a time for God to show his glory, but whenever that moment where God showed up, he showed out. And he did it in such a way that no one who was around at the moment could second guess, is he the one and only true God? He conquered the most powerful nation on the earth and he did it in such a way that neither Moses nor Moses' people could get the credit for it. Think about Daniel and his friends as we're gonna see. Think about Paul in jail. He's in jail, in the dungeon, It did not feel like a recipe for a good time. But yet God used it to shake that jail and show his glory and bring a whole, not just a family, but perhaps all kinds of other households, probably thousands of people in that city and in that region to Christ because he showed up and he showed out in that jail. God uses difficult times to show off his glory and that's the pattern of Jesus himself. In Philippians, we're told that, he says, have your mind, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That looked like it was all over. For those closest to Jesus, we thought he was God. And now he's on the cross. Now he's dying. Now it's over. But therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It was the cross that led to the crown. It was the suffering that led to the resurrection. It's in that moment that God uses to show his glory. Now the question that we should ask and that you should be asking is, where are we in this? Where are we in the story of exile? Where are we in the story of Daniel as we're starting out? Well, I think you're gonna find as we go through this series that some, that there are gonna be some places where we're gonna have some really clear application. You're gonna see like, that is, a, that is, that is exactly the situation I'm in personally. You're gonna have some time to see that. But before we get to there, there's, a, there's two big picture ways that I kinda of wanna frame for us as we're going in this series. Two big picture ways that we can, as we look at the Daniel and his friends and the nation of Israel who is in exile, how, how can we see, like, where do we find ourselves, <clears throat> excuse me, in this story? And the, and the first way that we can do that is that the, the church is described in the New Testament as living in exile. We're described as aliens or sojourners in this land, in this world. Peter said in verse in chapter two of First Peter, beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that is someone who lives in a 
in a land, but is not a resident or a citizen of that land. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. We're described in the New Testament as living in a world that is dominated by powerful, dark forces. We're, we are told that this world is not our home. That's what we're told. That this world, if we're believers in Christ, this world is not our home. Our forefathers in the faith constantly reminded each other of this. They sang about it. They had songs. We are not of this world. We are sojourners. We're pilgrims in this land on the way to where the Lord is bringing us. And if you have that mindset, then it reframes much of life. We view all of life differently if we view ourselves as sojourners or exiles in this world on the way to the promised land that God has for us when he rules and reigns in a new heaven and new earth. But I think, and here's what I, here's what I think, and I, I could be wrong. You can come up to me and tell me if you're wrong afterwards, but I'm pretty sure I'm not. I think that whole phrase and the whole thought sounds funny in our ears. This world is not our home. I think it sounds funny in our ears because we are like, a, if you guys ever read a, The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings or watched the movies, um, we're really like Bilbo and Frodo, those hobbits, who are too comfortable in our homes. Our homes are too homey. Our lives are too pleasant and our futures are too bright to really be captured by the concept that this world is not our home. Our beds are too warm. Our mattresses are too thick. We're too comfortable, we're too rich, we're too sleepy, we're too apathetic to really realize that this world is not our home because everything in this world is trying to tell us, yes, this is it. This is it. Like when hypothermia is setting in and it just says, just close your eyes and go to sleep. Everything in this world is singing a song to put us to sleep. This world is not our home and exile breaks in to remind us of that. Which brings us to the second way that we can relate to Daniel. Second place we can find ourselves in the story is that when we are unfaithful in the easy land, the Lord will send us to a hard land to retrain us. Because those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. We are exiles in our culture. It's becoming more and more clear, but we are exiles in our culture. This world is not our home. And maybe, just maybe, the situation that we find ourselves in as increasingly feeling more and more separated from the culture that is around us and increasingly seeing the, the challenge the church faces post-COVID world where the numbers are gonna be different, the numbers are gonna be down, the church is never gonna be the same size at the current rate that we're going as we were before. We were already getting smaller. It was just, this is kind of, COVID just kind of sped it up. 
We increasingly, as Christians, have less access to power. And maybe, just maybe, what the Lord is doing is by giving us less access to power and making, us, making it more and more clear that, that, that we are, that the, it's not just us pushing away from the world, but the world pushing away from us. Maybe, just maybe, the Lord is, is raising to our mindset, this world is not your home. You are exiles, you are sojourners, you are aliens here. Don't try to be what you are not, accept what you are and come after me and be, follow the pattern of Daniel. Follow the pattern of Joseph, follow the pattern of Christ and come out apart from them and be ye separate. Look, I pulled the King James out for that one. What do we do in exile? Look at this last part of our passage, verses four through eight of Daniel one. We saw in verse four, it says that the the chief of the eunuchs pulled out youths without blemish of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among those were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. We see in verse 7 that the chief of the eunuchs gave them new names. Now, the thing you want to see in these new names that he gave them is uh, the, they're part of each of these four uh, Hebrews. Part of the, Every single one of their names identifies them as followers of the one and only true God. The new names that he gave them just illustrate you are, we are saying you are no longer associated with that God. In verse 8, but Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to deny, not to defile himself. The first question we have to ask is, how do we respond in hard times? How do we respond in exile? How do we respond when God is, is, is calling us out into, as an unfaithful people in an unfaithful land so to train us in faithfulness, to, to make us a people of great faith? How do we respond rightly to him in those moments? And the first thing we have to do is we have to recognize God's hand in it, right? Did you see that in verse 1? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Look at verse two. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. What do we do whenever we see the support structure around our faith crumbling? What do we do? Do we rail against the wind? Do we further just kind of go with culture and, and fall into deeper slumber? Or do we hear the Lord's voice in the middle of Babylon calling us to himself? 
The first thing we have to do is recognize God's hand. The writer of Daniel recognized God was at work in the time when the times were dark, when it looks like the chips were down, when it, the evil, like think about this. Babylon is pictured in the Old Testament and the New Testament as the epitome of evil, as the seat where evil rules and reigns. And this says, God gave Jehoiakim and the people of Judah under subjection under Babylon. to do something greater. We have to recognize God's hand. Instead of fighting against what God is doing, recognize God's hand at work. And then what we also have to do, we have to recognize the hand of God, but also recognize the enemy's plan. You see the enemy's plan laid out here? He pulled, the, the king pulled these cream of the crop of the Hebrews into Babylon, away from their people, into his own kingdom. He separated them from God's people and he separated them from God's teaching so that they could reteach them and retrain them there in Babylon. He isolated them. So the Lord is doing something in COVID, absolutely, but the enemy has a plan in the middle of that and both of those things can be true. So it can be true that God is using COVID to wake us up. Also can be true that the enemy is trying to use COVID to get people to stay away from the gathering of God's people. To separate us. And so we're in our homes and we kind of start off by kind of watching the feed and then we kind of not watch the feed and we kind of have it on during brunch and then we kind of not have it on during brunch and then we watch it every other week and then once a, once a month and then you know, before long, we're still following on Facebook. The enemy tries to isolate us in the middle and say if we don't hear God's call and see his hand at work, we miss the fact that the enemy in the middle of that is trying to pull us and isolate us from God's people and isolate us from God's teaching and indoctrinate us anew. You see that they had the teaching? They were re-educating them. They gave them a new identity. They gave them new names. They uh, exposed the, these four Hebrew kids to appealing pleasure. They got to eat and drink from the king's table, the best, not just the best in Babylon, the best in the world. And it was provided for them. The enemy is trying to isolate them and now trying to indoctrinate them. We have a new identity you have appealing pleasures that are kind of pulling you in, enticing you in, and you don't want to be the only one that thinks like you think. Nobody else around here worships the one and only true God. That guy can't be true. That guy can't, that God can't be real. If he was real, you wouldn't be here in this house. Just accept, accept these pleasures, accept your new identity, and accept the thinking that everybody else around you is. Just go to sleep. He isolates, he indoctrinates, and then it leads to compromise. An interesting part for a lot of commentators and a lot of theologians at verse eight, where it starts, and we're gonna be going into next week, is, is why does Daniel say, I'm not gonna partake of the, the food and the wine that are from the king's table? Why? Because we don't, there's nothing expressly in this passage that tells us why he would think that to do that would defile himself, because 
he could eat things that it's not against scripture. It doesn't tell us specifically that it was all pork and shellfish. So like, why would he think that he can't eat at the king's table? And the way we kind of keep on landing for most commentators and observers is that, is that Daniel just saw within this that, that they were, he was trying to be isolated and indoctrinated and given a new identity and, and that to accept everything from the king's table was to, to start a path of compromise, was to start the easier way instead of the narrow way. What do we do? I hope the way that we'll approach this, this book and the way I pray that we'll approach this passage even this week is to say, to God, show me in my life and show me around, around us in this current cultural climate that we're in. Show us where your hand is at work. But also show me where the enemy's plan is at work in my life in order to, to, to isolate me and to indoctrinate me and to bring compromise so that I miss what you're trying to do and try to make me a person of great faith in this time where the chips are down and things are dark. And I know that according to history, you want to flex your arm and show yourself mighty. This is a moment for great faith. But we have to learn the lesson that God has for us in order to get there. And the pathway is always repentance and it's always faith. Repentance and faith, that's always the pathway. And God, show me in my heart, in my life, where I've been allowed my, allowing the enemy to bring, isolate me from your church, isolate me from other people, isolate me from hearing your teaching, and indoctrinate me with a new identity and appealing pleasures and acceptable thinking that's leading to compromise. And Lord, help me to see your hand at work and trust that you are working something in me and through me, that you want to work something in me and through me and in your church in this day and age to show yourself strong in the middle of a dark and hard time. And I think what we should be praying for today and praying for this week and praying for as we go through this series is God, give me great faith. There's a story I love as we close where this man comes to, to Jesus and he says, Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. Isn't that cool? God, I, I believe a little bit. But I still have a lot of doubt. Help me in that place. Help me see where you are. Where, help me see that you are strong. Let me see what you're doing in me and what you're doing in our day and age. Just show yourself strong and mighty. God, give us great faith. I think if we do that, then one day, one day, our generation will have an opportunity to have a place in this hall of faith. They're not gonna rewrite Hebrews 11. But I'm talking the bigger hall of faith that God is keeping track of in heaven. I believe God is at work in our day and age. He's awaking us from our slumber and lethargy and sleep and calling us to a new deep faith and faithfulness so that he can show himself strong. I'm gonna pray and as I do, we're gonna prepare our hearts for communion. 
where we see, where every, every single week we gather as the church to, to celebrate the broken, bo- the broken body and the shed blood of Christ who through suffering, in, through a hard time, took on our sin that we could not take on and flexed the arm of God on our behalf. And that he is coming again to rule and reign on a new heaven and a new earth, the promised land that he has promised us. And by taking that cup, that juice and that, and that cracker, we are celebrating and looking forward to that day. We're saying, yes, he's coming again. And yes, he's going to rule and reign. And we will no longer be in exile because we're not home yet. But because of Christ, we know where we're going. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for your church. I pray for us as we're gathered here this morning that you would put within our our souls a desire to be men and women of great faith. I pray that you would work that in us, Lord. And you would awaken us from our lethargy and sleep and comfortability. And you would flex your arm in our day and age. Would you flex your arm in our lives and in our church, in our community, in this neighborhood, in this generation? God, help us to learn the lessons that you have for us personally. Help us not waste this moment. Or show us the beauty of Christ and how he is everything that we want or need and let this time of darkness really show us that even as we celebrate it this morning in Holy Communion. We pray in the name of Jesus.